This episode was created on traditional, unceded Coast Salish territories of the Songhees and Wasanich people. You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host for today, Max Monday. I have Sarah Wickham, master's student in science, with me in the studio. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks very much. That's good. So, Sarah, your research focuses on the 100 Islands ecosystem. Tell us a bit more about it. So I'm part of a project that is a collaboration between UVic, SFU, and the Hakai Institute. And we work up on the central coast of BC in the area between the northern end of Vancouver Island and the southern end of Haida Gwaii. It's also known as the Great Bear Rainforest, which has made a lot of the news headlines lately because the royals are currently visiting there, or they did yesterday. Mm-hmm. But yeah, our project focuses on islands in this region, and we're doing biodiversity surveys. So there's a student studying mammals, someone studying invertebrates, another person studying terrestrial plants, and then a girl studying songbirds. My part of the project is to actually study sea rack, which is dead, rotten seaweed. And why we're looking at that is because it is capable of transferring a lot of nutrients to these islands, uh, marine nutrients specifically. So the sea rack will wash ashore and then invertebrates will eat it, songbirds will eat the bugs that are eating the sea rack and then they'll all take these nutrients and they'll bring them into the island ecosystems and they have the capacity to either raise or lower diversity of terrestrial plants mammals everything like that so we are looking at all these islands and doing baseline surveys to see if any of these processes are happening why did you choose seaweed specifically well, I actually, I didn't choose it. I got told to do it. Okay, for sure. <laughs> but the reason why I got told to do it was because it is one of the most consistent vectors, both uh, spatially and temporally, of marine nutrients onto these islands. Mm-hmm. So some other vectors would be seabird guano, which is seabird poo. Also river otters like to drag a lot of marine invertebrates onto land when they eat them and leave their carcasses around. Mm-hmm. But these are all kind of um, isolated events that just happen at a few places, whereas sea rack, uh, you can have faith that it pretty much washes ashore everywhere across the islands. Okay. So what is it about sea rack that makes it so important to the 100 Islands system? It's the bottom level of the food chain up there. One of the one of the possible bottom levels. So uh, the little invertebrates will come and eat it off the shoreline, and then the songbirds will eat them, as well as mice, shrews, voles, even bears when they come out of hibernation in the winter. Uh, they'll eat these, they're called amphipods, which eat the sea rack. Those mm-hmm. are the main source. They're a really good source of fatty acids and stuff like that. So bears will even come and eat these bugs, and it's a really important source of protein for them once they come out of hibernation. And yeah, so it's the, it's the basis of a big complex food web happening you let me know that the the sea wreck is it's it's nutrients for marine life as well so it's kind of like taking the marine life nutrients and giving it to the land as well correct yes yeah what part of the food chain is sea wreck in marine life it's called detritus and it's uh it's also a very low end of the food chain so it's a primary producer when it breaks up and decomposes, it floats around in small particles and it feeds invertebrates and, to a lesser degree, some fish. 
but yeah and then as it gets digested by the smaller things they get eaten by the bigger things and it works its way up the mm-hmm. food chain is there much of a cycle that goes on in marine life so when bigger animals or bigger marine animals pass on does it go back to seaweed as well i don't know if there's much evidence for dead marine animals like fertilizing seaweed i don't think there is actually because mostly seaweed grows with you know it needs sunlight and um that's its main source of food so yeah (laughs) yeah cool Let's talk about where the most concentrated amount of seaweed is. Well, kelp forests mm-hmm. and other bladed brown forests are where there's like a huge biomass of seaweed. And they're also really good habitats for a lot of marine creatures. And those are kind of ubiquitous throughout our study area. So mm-hmm. there's a bunch of foregrass. Yeah, and then there's also eelgrass and seagrass meadows and they're not actually seaweeds. Yeah. Uh, they're flowering plants that grow in the ocean. But they wash up on shore a lot, and we consider them sea rack as well. Okay. You can find sea rack pretty much everywhere when you go on the shores of the Great Bear Reinforce then? Sort of. Uh, yeah, that's that's mostly what my project is looking at, is trying to look at factors that can help us predict where sea rack will accumulate. Mm-hmm. Because there are, are a lot of things that kind of can lead to a big pile of sea rack washing ashore. So there's wind and tides and ocean swell. Then there's also like physical factors on land. So there's the slope of the shoreline. There's the substrate of the beach and also the way that it's facing. So the beach exposure, if it's open ocean or if it's in a calm area. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, generally you won't find too much sea rack on shorelines that are just straight rock cliffs, which is it's found a lot in the Great Bear Rainforest, mm-hmm. but anytime you get a lower slope, there seems to be a lot of rack accumulating there. This is all observational, though. I haven't done my statistics yet to see what the main factors are that okay. lead to the accumulations. Can you tell me what the environment looks like when there are more concentrated areas of sea rack? Yeah. So generally, this is shorelines that are kind of what you would describe as your typical beach. There's sand or there's gravel or cobble. And then right at the shoreline, there will be big piles of sea rack. And if you walk close to those, then you'll notice tons, like a cloud almost of rack flies lifting out of the sea rack. Um, there's lots of beach hoppers, so the amphipods I was talking about before. They're also jumping around. Um, and then you have, you know, up further up the beach, you'll start to have some sedges or salt tolerant grasses growing and then behind that you get your shrubbery and your big typical rainforests do you find that there is more terrestrial life uh in the places where there is more sea rat so that's what the other one of the girl other girls who's also working on this project she's looking at the mammals and then there's someone working looking at the terrestrial plants Mm -hmm. so I guess sort of the hope is that we'll see that there is different levels of diversity in these areas where there is a lot of sea rack because it could obviously be higher diversity because there's more um, food availability with the bugs and birds and stuff like that. Um, There's also sea rack has potential to fertilize terrestrial plants, just like people use seaweeds to fertilize their gardens. But then There's also the potential to be lower diversity because uh, having this extra nutrients could kind of encourage 
terrestrial plants that like nitrogen to grow better and mm. exclude other plants in the area. So we're not sure what levels of diversity we'll see, and we won't know that for a while, unfortunately. <laughs> we still have to do another field season. What does your field season look like when you're out in the field? What are some things that you go do to um, to measure the sea wreck? It's really logistically complicated, actually. So we start off, we take a boat from Port Hardy up to the Hackeye Institute, which is on this island called Calvert Island. And depending on weather, it's either a two to eight hour boat ride. And so once we get there, that's where we kind of stock up on food and we pick up our boats. And then we get taken out to an island archipelago kind of in within a two hour range of there. And at these little archipelagos, we camp for two weeks. So there's a group of uh, 14 of us camping. And we have these small little 10-foot zodiacs that we take to each island site. And on each, most of us on each island, we have four sites. So one in each of the cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we'll take these little boats out there. We'll anchor them. We'll hit the shoreline. The people that are doing the plants and mammals head into the interior of the island. And then myself and my field assistant stick on the shorelines. And we uh, we run out some transects. And we do some, place down some quadrats, determined by random numbers where to put them along the transect and then we just everything that we get inside our quadrat we weigh and we try to id to the best that we can but sometimes things are pretty rotten so mm-hmm. yeah we just do that over and over for two weeks and then we head back to calvert island and and the Hakai institute and we get to have showers and check the internet <laughs> and we go out for another two weeks and we do that five times you don't check rotten sea wreck we do. We just lump it into a pile and we call it unknown. Ah, okay, for <laughs> yeah. sure. So it's like too hard to identify pretty much? Exactly, yeah. Okay, for yeah. sure. Yeah. When you go back and so you like go back after the two weeks, mm-hmm. do you come together with your group and kind of like talk about what uh, what your findings were? Well, it's hard to do it at that point because we just were writing in notebooks. So we, we can talk about things observationally and, and we kind of do every night, which is one cool part of our project because... We eat dinners together and we have a campfire every night pretty much. And so we'll talk about what we've seen that day, which is a great way to share information because sometimes someone will notice something that they just see in passing and think is neat, but it's vitally important to someone else's research. Or So it's great to have that. But um, yeah, when we're out in the field, it's ha- hard to really know what we're looking at just because we're seeing so much of the same thing day after day after day. Yeah. So this fall... We're planning a retreat, and so we're going to go away for a few days and talk about, now that we've run some statistics on our data, we'll be able to have a more clear idea of patterns and trends that we're realizing. You informed me that by looking at sea wreck or seaweed, we can see that marine and terrestrial life are interconnected how so so most people think of ecosystems as uh, kind of separate entities uh, so there's the marine ecosystem and there's terrestrial ecosystems and there's all sorts of types there's you know alpine and desert mm-hmm. and they're kind of in their own little bubbles and in things inside those ecosystems are interacting on their own levels but when you see something like this then it really drives home the fact that things in the terrestrial environment are very dependent on the health 
of the marine environment and vice versa. So when sea rack is washing up on shore and it's uh, a vital but often overlooked component of the terrestrial food web, what happens, you know, with ocean acidification or with otters being extinct because otters are, uh, they eat sea urchins, which eats kelp. So when otters are gone, then um, we have less kelp forests and therefore less sea rack. So uh, maintaining the health and vitality of the ocean is also very important to maintaining the health and vitality of a lot of terrestrial ecosystems. So the Great Bear Rainforests is one of the only, if not the only, marine parks in Western Canada? There's, I think there's three, because there, there's also one, it's not a federal park, it's a provincial park, and there's also one in the Gulf Islands and also one in Haida Gwaii. Mm-hmm. So it's one of a very few. Okay, for yeah. sure. Uh, yeah, so it's one of few of, or one of the only marine parks in Western Canada. How did it get that title? Ooh, it's a, that's a long and complicated story. <laughs> and I'm probably not the best person to ask, but basically it stemmed out of logging protests that were happening in other parts of BC in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And it led to the formation of the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement, which was only recently signed into uh, legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has been ongoing agreement for, they've been working on it for 30 years, and it's First Nations as well as environmental, well, ENGOs, as well as government and forestry all coming together to try and work out a plan that would satisfy all of these entities. And there's debate around whether it's been successful or not. And I guess only time will tell. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Can you tell me, in your opinion, why it's important to keep the Great Barrier Forest as a protected park? It is one of the very few places in BC and probably in Canada where we have intact temperate rainforests that haven't been logged. And therefore it has, you know, what, what people would consider kind of a pristine wilderness, but I'm hesitant to say that that even exists anymore. (laughs) But yeah, it's just a really beautiful, wild place that has not been affected very much directly by human influence, has had indirect influences, but um, yeah. So with your project, how do you make sure that your, I guess your research doesn't have an effect on um, the places that you go? Well, we do practice Leave No Trace camping, so we're, we're packing out everything we take into there. Uh, we're not clearing any areas for camping, so we're trying to stick to beaches and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's definitely usage of boat and fuel consumption that's happening, but I guess that's uh, what we have to take trade-off <laughs> at this time. telling me that you got on this project through a mentor was that correct or like a professor that um that you worked with in your undergrad oh well kind of I just graduated and I got a job in this ecology lab in the school of environmental studies as a research assistant for one of the PhD students and then um I stayed with the lab as a research tech after the summer for a few months and then my PI who is developing this project with some other PIs, the ones from SFU and Hackeye, they put out kind of a call for students. They were looking for 
each PI was looking for a master's student and a PhD student. And yeah, so just I applied from there. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. And what was it that uh, made you want to stay on with this project specifically? Well, it, I honestly felt like this project was the position that came up or doing the CRAC portion of it was meant for me because I did uh, a lot of marine biology focused st- stuff in my undergrad. And then I switched and I went into this terrestrial ecology lab. So I had just recently learned all about you know forest species and bog species and stuff like that so I felt I had a really good grasp on both sides of the the ecosystems we were working in and then also I'd worked up in the uh, Great Bear Rainforest and definitely loved it up there and was looking very eager to get back there and look for a chance to do research up there. Does it feel like a second home yet? Uh, Yeah a (laughs) very temperamental second home though (laughs) because the weather is crazy up there. (laughs) Totally I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. How do you hope to improve our knowledge on the relationship between land and sea with your research? Basically, I think that the project that I'm specifically doing with the CRAC is pretty funny because, you know, I'm using something as ridiculous as rotting seaweed to highlight the fact that adjacent ecosystems are very dependent on each other and that both of them kind of have to be treated with respect and thought of from a sustainability standpoint in order for both of them to function. So yeah, I'm just adding another voice to that narrative that ecosystems are connected, which is, it's an age old story. It's been around forever, especially in First Nations folklore. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm just happy to be adding a scientific perspective to that. Have you had any trouble trying to convince people that uh, both land and sea life are interconnected? No, no one's pushed back on me about it yet. Uh, I haven't really shared my work research that much beyond my department in School of Environmental Studies. So as you can imagine, most people are pretty happy with that story. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Do you think that uh, your research will help people understand the dangers of, say, what's happening to our oceans because of global warming or climate change? Yeah, I hope so. I think, you know, links can be made from this project to that and to just the importance of preserving biodiversity as we go forward and kind of face these big issues. Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV 89.9.